Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What the fuck, Billies? What the fuckleberry thins? Okay, how are you? This is Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Why am I talking like this? How is everyone? Nice to talk to you. Today on the show, uh, Peter McGraw and Joel Warner are uh, here. They wrote a book called The Humor Code. You can get that at humorcode.com or wherever books are sold. This was not a contentious interview for me, but it was a little touchy because I always wonder what the motives are for trying to disassemble and categorize and make graphs of things like comedy. Why? Why do it? Why explain it? I couldn't quite get past uh, Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious. I think there was some good stuff there. It has something to do with, I think, fear and discomfort and feeling better. Uh, disarming the pain. I'm I'm not even paraphrasing. I'm making it up. I have no idea what his uh, primary argument was in that book or what his observations were. Let's let Peter McGraw and Joel Warner explain it. In a few minutes, Eddie Pepitone will be stopping. I can't tell you Eddie Pepitone is going to stop by. I interrupted my own sentence. How is that even possible that I interrupted myself? Whew. Well, look, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the TV show. We're waiting on a third season I uh, pick up. I think it's going to go. I want it to go. I think I have like a, a, a season in me that's going to be deeper and more creative than the seasons before it. I feel it within me. Uh, it was it was when I look back on the process of making two seasons of the show, Marin, I'm amazed that uh, that it happened and that, you know, the amount I'm learning and the amount I'm experiencing. I think I evolved as an actor, as a writer, as a producer. I directed one and I'm really starting to look ahead, you know, into the possibilities of, of you know, using my imagination in a different way. So I'm filling up my brain. I'm filling up my brain watching movies. I'm writing things down. I'm not necessarily writing things comedic. I'm trying to think in pictures. I'm trying to figure out what stories I can tell that are not directly based in my small world. It seems to me that a lot of the episodes that really resonated with people were things that were departures. Radio Cowboy got a lot of feedback. And that, you know, quite honestly, when we made Radio Cowboy, uh, the only choice that I had for that role was Phil Hendry. The character was based on Phil Hendry. It was based on my limited knowledge of doing radio, but also based on my knowledge and relationship with radio people. And I think that episode in dealing with 
this sort of diminishment of relevance of terrestrial radio and, and the sort of evolution of podcasting and, and things that are more available in that way never really had a human heart to it. And I think that, that it brought a lot of information to people that they didn't, they didn't really put into perspective or, or wouldn't have generally, uh, you know, just being, you know, consumers of this stuff. And I think that the sort of dynamics of, of those two worlds and, and the evolution it showed and the human pain around that, you know, had a, had a, had a real effect on people. And I was thrilled that people responded to that. As did the, the mouth cancer bit. I think getting out into the world and uh, working with other comics and showing the life of a comic a little bit in a slightly amplified way was compelling to people. It also had sort of a surreal vibe to it, but, but held its reality pretty well. Uh, people seemed to love that episode. Uh, people liked me and Dave Anthony, and there'll be more of that if we get another season for sure, me and Andy Kindler. And, and the final episode uh, uh, moved people. A lot of people didn't know where to where the show was coming from emotionally all the time, and sometimes it was a little heavy emotionally. But I, I think that that's okay. And you know, sadly, you know, the idea of of the death of an unknown comic and and unknown to to people in 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 the broader sense, but known to us is it, it's scary and it's sad. And, you know, you, you have moments where you realize how, how grateful you are when, when someone passes that, especially if they pass too young, like, you know, just the other day, uh, I got information that a, a great comic from Boston named Rich Seisler, who I've known for years, uh, passed away of a, of a, of a, a sort of rare and, and bizarre ailment in the Dominican Republic, uh, some type of, uh, autoimmune deficiency where the. Where, where your immune system sort of turns on your nervous system and it looked like he was going to be okay, but then he, he, he had uh, his lungs um, uh, weren't working great and he got an infection and, and he passed away it just out of, you know, within days. And this guy was a great guy. I tried several times to get him on WTF. I wanted him to do both of the live in Boston episodes, but he was a, a guy who worked the boats. He was a, a cruise ship guy. He's a great comic, and he'd been doing it for years. He was one of the first comics I actually saw work live in the sense that he, when I was doing the team comedy, the first time I really got on stage in Boston with Steve Brill, who you got to know on the 500th episode, at the Comedy Connection Boston, Rich Seisler was the host, and he was one of the guys that I saw a lot when I was doing open mics. And uh, I'd been in touch with on and off over the years. Always great to see him. You know, just a, a, a horrible horrible tragic thing out of nowhere and he's going to be missed he was a great guy and uh, uh my heart goes out to his uh his fiance uh catherine who was there through the whole thing and, and you know my heart goes out to his family it's 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 jarring uh how fragile life can be and it's, it's a very sad thing he was a good guy and a good comic and uh, i'm sorry we didn't get to to talk on the show uh, if you go look him up on Facebook, I, I do believe there you, there might be some help needed. Rich Seisler, R-I-C-H-C-E-I-S-L-E-R. But you know, it's it's as a guy who's 50 and, you know, thinking about, you know, what you know, obviously I'm living a good life and I'm grateful for that. But, you, you know, how much time am I going to spend you know repeating myself repeating myself easy it was easy i guess the message is try to uh 
you know, try to live your life as just don't drive yourself crazy. All right. Eddie Pepitone is uh, is stopping by here. Let's do that. Eddie Pepitone. I stopping by. That's right. This is a drop in. This is a drop in. I do drop ins for friends who have things going on. Yeah. And we're all so thankful. That you finally have something tangible going on. The special, which is great, but I'm going to Edinburgh, and that scares the fucking... Right, let's talk about the special. What's the special called? It's called In Ruins. Eddie Pepitone In Ruins, directed by Stephen Feinarch. Who did the Bitter Booter. Very, very talented. <laughs> yes, what a talented guy. I love this guy. Yeah. He's, he is a sweetheart to me. I know that you and, and him nice. have a combative... No, we do not. We do not. No, no, I okay. think I said something that he took the wrong way. Maybe he proved that I, he, he took it the right way. Maybe I was a little <laughs> condescending because it's hard for me sometimes. I look at these guys. It's like that kid, you know, but you know, he's a very really? talented guy. He seems to yeah. like you and you need someone like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember one of the funniest lines of the interview was like, uh, hey, where's my Jew to follow me with the camera? You said something like that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so In Ruins is coming out on Netflix uh, about August 7th. Now this is an hour? It's an hour. Uh And I taped it at the Bell House, Mm -hmm. which was a wonderful experience because that's my home home field advantage. Yeah. And I had friends from just uh, different parts of my life show up to this, which was really kind of cool. Guys I waited tables with. Oh, yeah? Which was very cool. Did you kill? I killed, and that was another, and, and it's similar to me now going away to Scotland, but that was another thing I was dreading. Mm. Like, before it, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I could really be on for an hour. <laughs> I do the Brooklyn, same. Brooklyn, I don't feel good. Like, immediately, yeah. I'm like, I don't feel good. Yeah. yeah, I'm the same way. What's wrong with us? I wonder if I look I like know, you I'm inside. Not... <laughs> I like now hold it. I think that was a slag. I think so. It was good yeah. for you. I'm good glad. for me for recognizing. <laughs> you're not so it. self-involved that you realize when you're getting hit. <laughs> but uh, I, you're happy with it. I am very happy with it. I yeah. am very happy with it. And um, I don't know what else to say. It came out really great. Is it just straight up? You didn't do any weird shit. Like in the middle, you're walking somewhere. Or- <laughs> You know, like here's some stand up, and look, I'm doing the same bit on the street. Nothing. Ah, no, we we had a little uh, bumper at the beginning where I was walking the streets of Brooklyn. Sure, but that, know, but that was just a setup because right. for the open, right? And That's then the it's open. just straight up. You're on the stage. You're Boom, doing the thing for an hour, and at the end, you do a little dressing room stuff. I no, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. No, 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 uh, no uh, post. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. I was what do they talking. Call that? A, no post game. I was talking to Steve about. Hey, maybe, maybe we'll go back to the Brooklyn Walk. Mm-hmm. Like, but mm-hmm. I don't know if we did that or not. But I know it's a little Brooklyn Walk at top. So that's on Netflix around August seventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called uh, In Ruins. In Ruins. That's yeah. uh, Eddie Pepitone's first hour special. First you you hour deserve special. it. Thank you. You self-produced, or they give you some money? What happened? Yeah, yeah, New Wave. uh, Oh, they're doing that, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Wave likes to give us money for things. Right. Yeah, and that feel good? Take their money? Yes, I love that. (laughs) I love taking money, period. So now, all right, let's talk about this Edinburgh. Yes. I don't know how to say it, so I'm going to just drop Edinburgh. I was finally told how to say it. Edinburgh. Yeah, that's good. Edinburgh. Edinburgh, someone told me. Edinburgh. Picture this, E-D-I-N-B-R-E. U-H, Edinburgh. Oh, Edinburgh. All right, so you're going yeah. back, you I'm crazy back. fuck. Yeah, well, why it's crazy is because it's 25 shows in 26 nights. That, for me- You have our condition. <laughs> Don't even- <laughs> I feel like it's better. 
I feel like it's better. Guy with your condition. <laughs> By the way, I was like, oh shit, I should get a physical before I go because, you know, I'm like, Jesus, this is so demanding mm-hmm. and I haven't had a physical. Seriously, I don't even know if I ever had a full physical right. like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure, and I've been vegan. This is what kills me. This the, is what kills me. What, vegan? That's just, what you probably, are you I haven't vegan? been eating animal products, but. Yeah. But of course, of like an idiot, I've been eating too many carbs, mm-hmm. and and I just haven't been exercising. You know, I just haven't been because I have I gotten into this. I had gotten into this thing where I just was like, I'm eating vegan. I'm cool. <laughs> no, of crazy. It of was crazy. So, so much fat in that diet if you're not careful. Yes. Yeah. You know, like they tell they say now it's the inflammation that gets you, not the not the fat. It's all the sugar. The, is that right? Yeah. That's my that's my next thing, man, is I'm cutting out sugar. And I've done it once before, mm-hmm. but I snapped. So because was, if you was... cut it completely, like I cut it completely yeah. and lost, I lost, I think it was 40 pounds. Yeah. And you look good, though. Really you good. look better than usual. Well, I've been exercising for a couple of weeks. For two weeks, weeks. Yeah. yeah. You're probably fine. When I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, but no, the good thing about Edinburgh is that uh, <laughs> it's all hills. You know, just to go That's to the main true. place, you got to walk schwepp up the hill. That's true. Like every That's day true. you're schwepping up but, that fucking hill by the castle. Right. I want to do a couple of miles. I, I, I've been jogging. I, and also what I, what I really want to get into there. Plenty I, of good jogs in Edinburgh. There are. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, it's beautiful. Have you done it? Yeah. I did it once. That was enough for me. Yeah. Did you do the whole- Brutal. Yeah. It's, it's rough. I was not in a good place gen- in general. Mm. Yeah, I just, my wife had just left me and- Well, that's, o- that's always- the- Well- that, that's <laughs> Is that always the situation I'm in? One Something form, is left. One form or another. I'm, Something is someone, leaving. Someone has had enough. Someone's had enough. I've had enough. <laughs> You've had enough. So what's that What's that show called? Rest in Peace now, USA. Now, is, uh, is that really you wrote a show for Edinburgh or you just, you said, no, I got a bunch of stand-up. Seems that the theme, uh, they tend to enjoy Americans shitting on their own country. That's my you know, angle. I don't want to do, do that. I don't want to pander to them. You know what I mean? So you're going to have to pander to somebody. You know, it's like you, <laughs> if you're not going to pander here, I mean, you might as well go over there and enjoy the fact that your whole agenda here in the States is to make people go, oh my God, he's really against everything. <laughs> and you just happen to be going to a place that has the same views as you, just nationality wise. Yeah, I feel safer doing this material there. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I feel like doing, you know, anti-U.S. stuff here yeah. is always like, uh, you know, I could get some yahoos or, who are like, hey, what Has the fuck? that ever happened? No, it hasn't. That's because you're you're very diplomatic. You pick your True. targets. You're not, you know, you, you, you're True. smart. You insert yourself into the center of it. True. You can't always tell the difference between whether or not right. you're just aggravated That's over right. traffic That's right. or That's corporations. Right. That's Everything right. just folds into the same thing. That's it's right. like, I didn't like my breakfast. We're all dying. <laughs> Why don't they? <laughs> Actually, I think I said in the description, yeah. I, I talk about the crumbling of myself and America, like my inner crumbling relates to the outer that's crumbling. exactly it yeah. how else are you gonna look at it if not completely <laughs> self-centered wise and you got to right yeah and so that takes the sting out of me just pointing the finger no you're not self-righteous because you can't stand yourself <laughs> <That's it. laughs> now if i was a you know a great looking 
arrogant, high status fellow. I yeah. think it might be different. Well, thank God none of that's going <laughs> to. <laughs> Don't you kid yourself? <laughs> oh God, <laughs> I'm so mean to you sometimes. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. You know what? You know what? The other what? day, the other day, this hit me. Now, now uh-huh. this goes back and forth. But the other day, I kind of looked at myself in the mirror, and this has been going on lately. And I was like, you know what? I don't really care that much. Like I, I'm not as like obsessed with leaving the house. Going, man, I look good today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that happens with age. It hasn't quite happened to me yet. Because if I feel if I feel like I'm carrying a couple of pounds, I might as well just. Well, you're pretty crazy about your weight, huh? Yeah. See, you torture yourself. You see, that isn't good either. Because they say the biggest um, thing for a heart condition is stress. So if you're stressing. You know about stuff. I have high know. cholesterol. That's bad. Yeah, you. Uh, it's a little high. Not that I see. That is one thing the vegan diet helps with. What do you eat? Meat. You eat a lot of meat. Well, I was I for like when What's I found high out cholesterol with you. What do you eat? That's well, like no. Cream? I mean, at that time, I was eating a lot of meat because I thought it was okay. So what I did when I found out I had high cholesterol is I just started mm-hmm. exercising. I stopped eating red meat almost entirely. Right, and I, and I dropped eighty off of it. Wow. I'll tell you, man, with with fe- feeling the dread and anxiety, yeah. you want to reach for the comfort stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I can't. Then by comfort, you mean cock. <laughs> my cock. Yes. And when I feel dread and anxiety, I want to reach for my cock. Well, that too. Yeah. That too. And my cock and ice cream. Cock and, and ice cream. And that, cock and ice cream. And that woman over there. Uh, yes. Whoever they may be. Whoever they may yeah, be. That one, I want that, that one. That one. Yeah. That one's fine. I think she looked at me. I think so, too. I wonder, <laughs> wonder if she saw my show. Ah, yes. All right, so what's uh, the show is called what? It's called, uh, in Edinburgh? Yeah. It's called Rest in Peace USA. It's been fun, and it's about the fact that it seems like the economy just gets worse and worse and worse. It's <sighs> <laughs> and that you're going to be playing, let's see, at the all- Wait, at the Pleasance, Pleasance Above Theater. The Pleasance Above Theater for, for the, the entire month. month of August. If you don't, you know. Just about, till, the, till August 26th. Maybe this is your year there. Maybe you'll win the soda prize <laughs> or whatever the fuck it is. The soda prize. <laughs> what is it? And now to give away the soda prize. I can't do it, Scottish. The Perrier Award. Give away the soda prize. So you got a lot of shit. Going I did on. London last last summer. That was I fun. Go back Three to weeks. London. Yeah, Three nice. week run at the Soho Theater. I did the Soho. You did as well. Mm-hmm. I found the audiences to be a little weird. Yeah, well, yeah. I just like they weren't. They uh, there would be a couple. Uh, no, more than a couple of nights where the laughter would not be rolling. <laughs> Couldn't get. A, that's because you're just an American with problems. You know the. You know, what they, do they want? They're not designed the same way. They actually look at a show as a, a show. They don't assume that you have these deep emotional needs that need to be met. You know, at every turn. So then of this, a, yeah. Yeah. So like they're they're sort of like, why does he keep pushing? Why does he keep pushing? Why can't he just do his Can't thing? he say something a bit insightful yeah, yeah, about yeah, exactly. it? Like, condition? He has no boundaries, this guy. And you ever see Stuart Lee over there? Yeah. He's a good guy, huh? Yeah, he's good. He's great, great comic. Great comic. Yep. Yeah, intimidating. Very intimidating because he's very decisive. And he's very he's, he's got a very specific style that is his own. And he has no fear of not getting laugh one. It's true, right? Mm-hmm. Guy I interviewed good. him. It's a great interview. Oh, really? Well, you interviewed him? I did, yeah. I didn't know that. Early on. Holy shit. It's a great one. Holy shit. I'm, lot, I'm going back of, on the archives to A lot to of good listen. news in that one. A lot of good uh, advice in that one. Was that a phone or how did you do it? Were you... I was there. Oh, when I was God. doing the Soho, I interviewed him. I sought him out 
because yeah, I knew he was a respected guy and I'd watched a little bit, but you know, it was great to talk to him because he quit for a while. I know. Yeah. Wrote yeah. a book about it. Yeah, I got the book too. Well, so you got a lot going on. Yeah. And I'm I happy for you. Thank I'm truly you, happy for you. Thank you, buddy. I can be that way for you. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to be... stay alive. You're going to be one of the people that I'm going to stay alive. I'm staying alive. You know, I'm staying alive for my dog. I'm staying alive uh, for the wife. I'm I, st- I was hoping you'd get that in. Jesus Christ, you put the dog first. You want to try it again? We'll cut that out. I'm staying alive for my wife. Mm-hmm. I'm staying alive for the dog. Yeah. And I'm staying alive. I want to get really big. I, I ser- I'm serious. I want to get really, really big. Yeah. As a comp, like bigger than anybody. Yeah. And, and then just go to a couple of people and say, you, you see that? I, I won. I won. <laughs> <laughs> I want to win. I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. I hear you, buddy. I hear you. So, rest in peace. Rest the in special peace. on Netflix. No, the special is called Eddie Pepitone in Ruins. Eddie Pepitone in Ruins. The special. I'm going to tell Brendan to leave all of those corrections in. I'm going to tell him right now. Every time where we assume there's going to be an edit, there's no edit. So even this, Brendan, leave the dog thing in. <laughs> I don't know. You don't know? I can get in trouble. For All right, that Donald, one. take that out. We're gonna okay. We're gonna do this right. Take it out. Take out. You know what to do. The uh, the special in ruins. On Eddie Netflix. Peppertone, Netflix around August seventh. Yes, and uh, directed by Steve Finart. Yes, the very brilliant guy. Yes, great director. Great director. I'm glad he's coming along. I <laughs> <laughs> see. I give and I take away. You give and you yeah. take. And then. Rest in peace, USA. It's been fun. It's been fun. That's a long title. So you know, you, everybody tells me that. Okay. So it's at the Pleasance Above Theater in Edinburgh. Well, maybe it'll be so popular that they, they just go, "Do you see Rest in Peace?" And no one's going to go, like, <laughs> "Is that the whole name of it?" So like, everybody will just know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that Scotsman review or whatever the fuck it is. Is she that what it is? She likes me. She does. Kate. Kate. There's, there's only one person. I think. Well, she's the big one. Um. All right. Well, again, uh, congratulations. Thanks, Mark. Don't die. I won't. I want to win. Okay. I love Eddie Pepitone. I love Eddie Pepitone. Can I say that again? It was so great. To t- it's always great to talk to Eddie. He makes my heart sore. Mark! Mark! That's my, I was just possessed by the spirit of Eddie Pepitone saying my name. All right, so let's get into this humor code business. I wanted to hear them crunch the uh, angle. It was presented to me as science. I wanted to question the science, and here we go. Let's try to understand why. Why humor? How does it work? What does it mean? What are the lines? What are the graphs? Crunch the numbers. Show me the research, Peter McGraw and Joel Warner. Let's talk to them. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needs to prepare something to say in class.
class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Now. We were just curious why you decided to reach out to us. I don't know. You wrote the book. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty big undertaking. The Humor Code, a global search for what makes things funny. I mean, why wouldn't I be interested in that? That's great. (laughs) I mean, I I don't usually usually do interviews like this. You're right. I'm skeptical. Good. But uh, you guys seem to have done some kind of research. (laughs) A little bit. I mean, I I know Freud tried to, to nail this thing. With uh, wood, it's and wood and its relationship to the unconscious, correct? Yes. Yeah. And what you did? You guys check that out? Oh yeah, that's that's not working. It's not working. <laughs> no, what was his? We wouldn't we wouldn't have written the book. We just make C Freud. Well, no, but no one can handle. No one can read Freud. What? Well, what? Is, <laughs> I, so okay. Well, okay. So that what was the other? What were the seminal texts that you decided were not credible? Well, okay. So what Freud has right? Yeah. Is that that humor comes from potentially dark places. Uh-huh. It comes from, uh, at least partially from kind of sexual, aggressive kinds of behavior uh-huh. and often things that are taboo right. to express. And right, so there's a discomfort. Yeah, so there's some, so, com- you know, a lot of times good comedy comes from that kind of place right. and, and good comics are good about uh, making those unpleasant things safe enough for a, an audience to delight in. Uh, Freud was sort of wrong about the process and Freud was wrong about um, he was too much too limited in the in terms of the vast array of things that make us laugh right not well, just he those was, little taboo things that are sexual or aggressive well he needed to fit it into his theory of, uh, of repression and, exactly. yeah, and everything else yeah yeah he had a lot on his mind yeah it's actually a noble effort for someone who who didn't have the kind of scientific techniques that we have today all right so you're you're Joel yes. Joel Warner Peter McGraw, the authors of The Humor Code, a global search for what makes things funny. Uh, what was the intention? Do you guys think you're funny? No, I don't think I'm particularly funny, but, uh, but I mean, I don't have to be. I get to write about What's comedians. your background? I'm a writer. I'm a yeah. Denver-based writer. and uh, Journalist? Uh, yeah, journalist. Uh-huh. I was working for the Alt-Weekly Westward in Denver uh-huh. three years ago, and I heard about this professor who had a humor research lab at University of Colorado Boulder. Yeah. Said, that sounds like really... Fantastic all weekly story. Head of Hurl. 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 Short uh-huh. for Human Research Lab. Okay, but he must get a kick out of that. He Hurl. loves it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, hey guys, I'm in the room yeah. right now. And in what department? Uh, I'm a, I'm a psychologist by training, and I have appointments in marketing. You're and the professor. I am. You're the guy he's talking about. Yeah. Oh, I didn't make that connection. <laughs> yeah. You're the guy. I'm. Yeah, yeah. I'm that professor. I have. I have a lab called Hurl. Okay. Yeah. So, what what department are you in? Uh, marketing and psychology. All right, so I'm like a behavioral economist type. Right. So yeah. your intention to understand the the, the way uh, laughter works in people was you know to deliver the message. Yeah, to try to crack the humor code, to try to understand what are the underlying processes. So he comes. So Joel it. comes along. He writes an article on you, and he well he did more than that. He he sort of challenged me to 
to leave the laboratory and uh-huh. to go out into the world. Well, yeah, like as a writer, I mean, Pete's kind of going through his research and his theories, and this is like this is like a five thousand word story for Westward. And I was thinking to myself, I need to get this guy out of the lab, right? So to apply his theories, yeah. So I said, how about I take you to a stand-up night? in Denver, and you use your theory to critique the comedian. So you go to Comedy Works. Well, actually, instead of that, Pete says, how about I get up on stage and try stand-up? Now, did you want to do stand-up? No, I never had really thought about it. I, I think I was just having a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, well, I can, you it's know. easy. So, so you ask, am I funny? And the answer is, depends who you compare me to. Uh-huh. So if you compare me to other professors, yeah. I'm pretty funny. Yeah, you're the guy. Yeah. You're the cool professor. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, at least most of the time. Right. And, and uh and so I decided I was going to go to this open mic. It's at the Squire Lounge. Okay. Uh, so you, well, you started small. You didn't uh, use your uh, your pull to get a spot at the Comedy Works by saying, <laughs> we're writing an article. Can you help me well, out? I, I'm a professor. I just need five minutes. You went to an open mic night like a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. Well, I actually went to some of my comedian friends in Denver. Yeah. Who? And I said, uh, Adam Caton Holland. Oh, he's a good guy. Yeah. And I said, because he actually used to work at Westward. And he said take him to the Squire Lounge mm-hmm. because it's known as the toughest open mic night in Denver. Mm-hmm. It's this like dirty hipster bar. Yep. Adam said, if you fail at the Squire, you will be cruelly, cruelly mocked. And what happened? I failed at the Squire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how'd that feel? <laughs> it was a little bit of a wake-up call. You know, I mean, I, I know now. How? Well, in terms of the complexity of of performing. Well, what were you thinking going in? Well, that's the thing. I think that, that now, in the benefit of hindsight, it was ludicrous that I thought I could succeed with 24 hours preparation and running some of these ideas past some of my but you did. friends. But I did it anyways. But you did think you could succeed. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I thought the jokes that I wrote were funny. So you thought stand-up funny was easy? I thought that stand-up would be easy for me. Hmm. At least easy enough to get up on an open mic and tell jokes for three or four laughs. minutes and get some laughs. So you're one of those people. Not there's I plenty was, like you. I was okay. one of those people. Plenty like you that yes. think like, well, that doesn't look too hard. That's that's right. I also was sort of playing nice. You know, Joel Joel was a good guy, and he's like, you know, wanting to create some some excitement around this. I want people around the talking. story. Yeah, I want people talking about what makes things funny. And so if I have to subject myself to a little humiliation to do that. I'll do it. But the funny thing is to me that you didn't expect that you would. Well, I was nervous. I mean, I, I was worried at the time. I was like, mm, I think my jokes are a little too benign for Well, this but crowd. you weren't at first. It was funny. So we walked in. I think I was a more nervous. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I was just, I was feeling nervous about how I was going to do. Did you, were you introduced? Did the, the were you, uh, did they qualify it? They did. Yeah. Oh. So, now, it, and then all of a sudden the first comedians that might started going harder. on and they yeah. were telling jokes about smoking crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. And then Pete looks at me and says, I'm worried my jokes might be a bit yeah, just said it would be a boring, boring set of jokes. Right, but jokes are jokes. They should work, right? Didn't you find that out in your research? Good uh, jokes should work, no well, matter what. Well, the best, the best jokes should work universally, exactly. but that's very difficult to do. That's I, a tough code to crack. Indeed. So you get off this stage after bombing. Yes. And, uh, and w- what's the conversation? You thought about it for a night. I did. And then you sent me an email the next day. Yeah. And one thing you said is that, you know, to succeed at a place like the Squire, he'd have to make his jokes much more violations, uh-huh. which wouldn't have worked because at that point, I think I that was, was the day. That was the day Pre-tenure? he submitted his tenure <laughs> application. It was the next day. So as he said, I mean, if you know, if he tried to reach to kind of... Match I'm making these slavery jokes, jokes and and the kinds of I mean, things he, that these other folks oh, right. are doing. Oh, you might get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I actually really envy comedians in one sense because mm. they they're not only um, allowed to say nearly anything they want, but they're they're um, rewarded for it. 
and the, and the more outrageous, the better. As a professor, you have to sometimes you know, toe the line. Exactly. There's a there's a there's rules. Yeah. The advantage I have though is I get a steady paycheck, right? That's the that's the benefit. Yeah, well, that that's that is trade off. But, but, you know, creativity is limited and, and personal freedom may be limited. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, people make those sacrifices in order to, uh, to get uh, security. Yeah. No, no, I think uh, that's, that's one of the big problems with, uh, with being a professor. I, yeah. I think that it's all, I refer to it as government work. Right. So it, it often attracts a, uh, what we call prevention focus, someone who's, who's more interested in not failing than in succeeding and having that security. And so it takes... It takes a real effort to break out of that mold and to do things that might be unpopular as an academic, like team up with a with a journalist and travel around the world and write a popular press book. Right. You've got to be tenured to do that. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> All right. So so you bomb. So I write the story, story for Westward. And then that's right, just revolving around his lab and and this one application yes. of testing. So the story came out. Yeah. And then soon after we actually uh, a literary, a literary agent reached out to us and yeah. said could there be a book in this? And we started thinking about it. And right off the bat, we're thinking, okay, we, we need to once again kind of expand beyond just Pete doing research in a lab. So, right. so how can we kind of inspire this kind of But what kind of research were you doing before the journey around the world? I mean, what, what, were, what were your experiments? Oh, so I'm still doing those things. Uh, so the first paper I published on this topic was how, why people laugh at moral violations. Mm -hmm. So most times when people are exposed to something that they think of as immoral, they get angry, they get disgusted, but sometimes they laugh. Sometimes they In that nervous, uncomfortable way. Uh, yeah, and that was one of the findings that we had is that, that um, funny moral violations often are a mixed emotional experience. So people are experiencing enjoyment, but also some displeasure. Well, they're, they're experiencing the enjoyment of, of knowing that what they're hearing is not what they're supposed to be hearing. That, that, right, that there's that moment where you're like, well, that's wrong, and I've never heard anyone say that before, and that's funny in and of itself, and then there's the discomfort of it out being out in the world. Yeah, although it, it's a slightly more complicated than that. Good. Because what we find is that, 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 a, that a similar situation that you just described, in some cases, just get people upset and sometimes makes them laugh. So we were using, we were using these stories, like we were basically using stories about bestiality, yeah. And making them more or less funny. Yeah. So that's one of the things that, that's nice to do in a laboratory. You change a set of words in a description of an event, and then you measure whether people find it more or less funny. So one of the stories involves a, a young man who is sitting down, and Joel's already laughing at this. He's sitting down, and he has a kitten yeah. who's uh, sort of playing on his lap, and he's in boxers, and he becomes aroused by yeah. this. Mm -hmm. And he decides that he... That he was going to, how exactly what's the word? He says that he he basically uses the kitten as a sex toy. Yeah. In the in the scenario. Yeah. And at this point, people don't think this is typically very funny to yeah, do this. Yeah, it's a kitten. And you add, but if you add a qualifier yeah. to it, that the kitten purrs and seems to enjoy the contact. Yeah. All of a sudden, this gets transformed into something that people. It's not find just funny. A, a victim; it's part of it. it. So now the kitten, now both parties are enjoying themselves. <laughs> yeah, and the, that helps make that thing that's wrong in some way okay. Okay, but if you but if you instead have the kitten whines and does not seem to enjoy the contact, okay, people don't laugh at that. And so this is, I mean, this is something that I now realize about comedy is how sometimes just tiny changes within yeah, a joke, could be a word, a word. 
an intonation uh, can can help facilitate this benign appraisal that we right. talk okay, about. Okay, so that you know, this is just a, the kind of like um, assessing, you know, what people laugh at and uh, you know why they laugh at it. But did you were were you curious about the the, the sort of neurological or mental or psychological necessity for laughter? Um, so or was not, that an out of the out of the the range? Like, do you, you know, obviously people need to laugh. It provides something. Yeah. So why is it they pursue this experience? Yeah. Um, so or why does it happen? Even I mean, that's one example. The moral sort of uh, yes, know, that's right. I mean, example. Yeah, we've done work on, and we talk about it in in the humor code about when is a joke too soon? Right. How do you transform tragedy into comedy? Right. And. Um, uh, what what we've been doing lately is not only looking at when something's too soon, but also when it's too late. Mm-hmm. So how there's this sort of sweet spot to comedy, right? And um and and related to that idea is this notion of coping. So um, how humor is this emotion regulation sy- system that people have. So it's one way that they deal with the stresses and strains of. Right, and to, to whatever degree, that's where you get gallows humor. That's where you get, you know, uh, you know, funny stories in concentration camps or in, in the face of tragedy. Uh, you know, these darker uh, stories can can help people find a little yeah. relief in, in 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 the grief. That's right, uh-huh. and also how um, you can speak truth to power. Right, so if you're oppressed, that you can use comedy to um, point out. What's wrong with your oppressors? As long as you speak as the oppressed. Yes, that's right. So we, we you can w- get away with more because you can say, "Hey, it was just a joke." So you almost you almost get more leeway, right? But also the voice say. of the oppressed. There's there's a there's a point where it does become threatening to power. Uh, you know, if the voice of the oppressed uh, is rallying, yes. You know, then power says like, "Well, that's very funny. You're going to be shut in this room for a while." And there's a long history of this in in Nazi Germany, um, in Russia. Um, during the Stalin era, and and so we actually went to Palestine to a look long at history this. of what of you can get so far, and then eventually the government says, and what happened? No in, more jokes, right? What happened in Palestine? So we went to Palestine to like look at this very concept. Like, why would you find comedy in these places of trouble and turmoil? How else are you going to get through it? Yeah, and so while so while we're there, we we met with this show called Watanala Watar, which uh-huh. was Palestine's first political satire show, uh-huh. and it actually. It was on a Palestinian state television. And these guys made fun of everyone. Yeah. Uh, Osama bin Laden, President Obama, the Israelis, Palestinian government officials. And so these guys were doing great. And we actually went during Ramadan. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, Ramadan is like sweeps. Because, I mean, everyone goes home at night, eats a big meal, and they sit in front of the TV. Right. So they're having a show, like, literally every single night during Ramadan. It was a big deal. Right. Halfway through our stay there, it was there for a week. This show's been on for three years. Mm-hmm. The government shuts it down. Huh. In that, two days before, they'd run a skit making fun of the uh, Palestinian attorney general. Yeah. Saying that he keeps getting complaints about Watanala Watar. And then they make fun of him in their skit. Two days later, the attorney general shuts it down. Oh, really? Because he had that power? Yeah. And he didn't, couldn't take a joke? Yeah, he couldn't take a joke. And that was that? Yeah, yeah I think what happened was... Was there the... any backlash? Yes. Yeah, there was, you know, it made... Uh, so while we're hanging out with them, uh, Al Jazeera came by and did a, did a segment on this, and the people, you know, and there were, there were polls saying the vast majority of Palestinians were completely against this. And as you can imagine, these guys ended up okay, because, you know, this, this, this sort of controversy 
just it just made them more popular. So yeah. I think now they're on Gave some a little other bump in the rating. Yeah. So, so they're now they're on some other show. I mean, uh-huh. now they're on some other channel. And they're talented, right? I mean, that's one of the things too. Is that yeah, you gotta have a certain skill. That's right. So that was your experience in Palestine. So like your ultimate search during this book, the Humor Code. What were you looking for exactly? What's the secret? What's the secret? Were sauce? you looking for some sort of universal thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So now, where did the where where were you most surprised? Like that Palestine thing, that sounds like it's pretty traditional political comedy yeah. uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where else did you go where you were like, holy shit? I, for me, one of the more surprising places we went, we went to uh, Denmark and Sweden. Right, you think those people got their shit together. Well, we went to look at uh, the Muhammad cartoon controversy, where these dozen political cartoons published in a Danish newspaper in 2005 unleashed gl- a global controversy. Yeah, they were. They wanted their their necks. Yeah, so we went and met with some of these cartoonists who now live under twenty four seven security. Was it worth it to them? They said it was. Most of them you said it was. It? Well, I think they have to say that now, right? I mean, how do they not say it was worth it? Because I mean, it's it was done is done. Now, one of the cartoonists we met with That's very was actually really was actually pissed off because he actually so he was one of these twelve car twelve cartoonists. But the cartoon he drew wasn't of Muhammad. It was actually just of this little kid who he called Muhammad making fun of this far-right newspaper for doing this stupid draw pictures of Muhammad. So he got caught up in the controversy, yeah. and now he's yeah. got to be under security, because, too. So he's not happy. Yeah, because, I mean, in some ways, these cartoons were met for a local kind of far-right Danish audience. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, 2005, the Internet, Global News, it goes global all the context of like what these cartoons were yeah it's completely lost yeah there's a problem with context on the internet yes yeah just a bit so so what did you find out in terms of your mission there about humor um a big part of this is just to understand how humor can hurt right so even well-intentioned um attempts at at comedy can um can set people aside right can make people feel unwelcome unwanted can bully people in many ways. And so I think present day, we tend to think of humor as this largely positive thing, but through history, it actually has many more negative connotations. So we were talking about humor theories earlier. So one of the popular humor theories through time is this idea of superiority theory, that we laugh when bad things happen to other people, especially other people we don't like. Schadenfreude. Yes. This idea of, so Hobbes called it, um, that laughter rise from sudden glory. So vic- being victorious over our enemies. Right. And so... And that, that's it, a, 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 a short jump to bullying. Yes, that's yeah. right. And in Scandinavia, we wanted to look at, at that specific issue, and we used the, the Muhammad cartoons as the kind of backdrop. Really? Because that would seem to me um, an ideological issue. That like I don't I, I guess it hurt people, but uh, you know, ultimately I would imagine that there's got to be some Muslims that said like Nah, come on, take it easy, fellas. I mean, yeah, this was a leadership reaction, wasn't it? Well, so it, it ended up turning into a political tool, right? So in the Middle East, so um, there's a small um, Muslim population in Denmark, and uh, they're largely segregated, and there's a, there's actually a good deal of discrimination there, and this certainly was used as a tool to sort of set these people apart. And they reacted actually quite well. They protested this, but in a way that was um, peaceful. Right. It, was, it wasn't until uh, this was started to be used um, by a tool in Syria and It and took elsewhere. like five or six months. And it was helpful that, that it was a country like Denmark, which is as one of the, the 
Danish reporters said to us, it's kind of like picking on the smallest kid in the playground. I mean, right. you know, it's easy to protest Denmark, you know, if you're Syria. So but, that helps. Yeah, but I, I mean, no one ends up looking good in this situation, right? So, um, you know, many of the cartoonists seem to act without um, conscience. Um, well, a lot the, of times the newspaper, guys who do that just want to push buttons. Yeah, the newspaper yeah. wanted a provocative editorial. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so so what, it felt like this sort of thriller, right? We're trying to find out who's responsible for this, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And in many ways, most people appear to be the bad guy um, in ways that it would never, would never have happened years ago in the sense that this would have only gone so far, it would have been a, a short protest and then would have passed. Yeah, the next day newspaper who would have been off the stands... Ne next issue, I mean, but right. thanks, to the, thanks to the internet, this this stuff sticks around and spreads. Forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, just as a comic myself and just as somebody who has grown up, uh, you know, using humor as, as a weapon, a tool, uh, a career, mm -hmm. you know, in all different ways. I mean, I know that, that, that if you are defensive, you can be preemptively disarming with comedy. Uh, you can also sort of cross... Uh, you know, boundaries mm -hmm. with comedy through uh, diplomacy and, and sort of get acceptance from people that you may, may or may not have uh, been able to be get acceptance from. I mean, you can also hurt people. You can also relieve pain. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, things that happen. And, and I, I guess in, in something like this, when he starts separating, you know, what the, the negative and positive elements of humor are. I mean, does it all end up, I mean, it seems to me that was this a, a justified exercise in comedy do, it, when you look at it that way? I mean, who's, you know, who am I to say, right? I think that, that what we want to do is take these case studies and use them as a platform to understand these broader issues. So we could have picked some other controversy. So it seems like that. another place. Right. Palestine and, and Scandinavia. Uh, Scandinavia were yeah. similar. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, in some ways, so so when we planned out the book, we said, okay, there there are certain kind of big questions that we want to ask about humor. You know, um, you know, how can humor fail? Which is how we how we chose Denmark. We wanted to look at, um, is but also, but, uh, but you're not talking about stand up necessarily because you, you know humor fails. Right. Yeah, when so the joke yeah, one of. One of our first decisions was we didn't want the book just to be on stand-up. Because in well, some I mean, ways, there, there's so much out of there course, but already. I mean, but did it fail in the sense of did it, did it not show the world how uh, you know, a, a type of, of violent and, uh, and, and also you know, quite frightening reaction on behalf of a, a political structure and a religious structure to actually threaten the lives of someone? Isn't it nice to know that that exists, that there is this type of intolerance, and then what do you do with that? So, I mean, can it be seen as a total failure just because... Uh, you know, this reaction. I mean, that reaction also shows a lot about the, the oppressor, doesn't it? Indeed. Well, the idea is this, that at, at, at its heart, and, and as someone who does comedy, your first question is, am I funny or not? Have right. I made people laugh or not? And in that way, the cartoons did seem to fail and th that they weren't particularly funny to anyone. But satire sometimes is not. Uh, I, but would you, I would argue that the best satire not only speaks truth to power, but also amuses and er entertains people along the way. Sometimes there's some pretty crass satire. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, when Krasner, you know, wrote that piece about, uh, you know, LBJ, you know, in the back of the plane that was carrying uh, JFK's body, mm -hmm. you know, having sex with the neck wound, uh, is that hilarious? I mean, I you know that 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 is you know above and beyond you know fucking a kitten, I, and but it, it it did certainly say something about the personality of LBJ and about the possibility of of of, of how 
dark and horrible politics can get. But I, I would I would argue that it was not a, a laugh out loud bit of business. Yeah, and that uh, and but I would say that all things being equal, the best satire is funny in addition to pointing out in a way of of not necessarily laughing but definitely being cutting being entertaining creating some insight and and this is this is one of the challenges of trying to understand what's humorous is this the difference between the ha-ha response and the aha response right the best comedy combines those two Uh uh-huh um yeah kind of mind-blowing and funny yeah it changes the way you see the world the way you think about things and you're being entertained in the process right now, here's my question for you. As a comic, if you had to choose between those two, which do you choose? And do you think that your peers would, would agree with your choice? I think aha is always a, a little more um, rewarding mm-hmm. because I, I think that, that, that more so than, than haha, uh, you know, haha can be, you know, very surface. But do you, know, you get booked in the clubs and do you get specials? And well, I mean, like, those I, are the kinds of things that I think that... No, I, I think that you can, you know, obviously you do them both. But to, to actually look at something differently and change the way people think about something is... Uh, and that, you know, can happen with both. Uh, but uh, And obviously those both components should be working. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, comedy is not about that at all. It's about revealing yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, anyways. It's about, it's about being, you know, revealing. So, you know, the sort of discomfort of of genuine interaction for me is uh, a, a place I like to go with my comedy that, you know, if you can, you know, share parts of yourself, uh, you know, as a, a sort of means to, to sort of maybe make other people more comfortable. I, I think that is an aha thing, but I, you know, certainly I have a tremendous amount of respect for a good role. Right. But I mean, but to have somebody walk out of a show and think, you know, I never thought of that that way before is more rewarding than, uh, you know, that guy's hilarious. You want both, but yeah, to blow minds is, is the, the way to go. And, and so you, you take this approach where you, you aim it at yourself. Sometimes. Yeah. A lot now. Yeah. And, um, in that way, that's, I, I don't say this in a pejorative way, but that's sort of safe in the sense that you, um, you let people in versus by pointing out what's wrong with you versus pointing out what's wrong with them. I don't know if I would no. call it safe because the thing is, is that when, you know, when I look at the schematic or the, the Venn diagram yeah. that you guys have for, uh, what is it called? The benign violation. The bi- benign violation is that, you know, sometimes the benign violation you know, in the center of this diagram between benign and violation mm-hmm. is the actual individual and what that person risks. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, you know, is it safer to point it at me? No, because, you know, I'm putting my heart on the line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a performer, you know, outside of the humor itself, you know, I'm taking emotional risks. Right. You know, do, is that safe for me? No, but that's what I do. So that that world, it is not inherently safe because you don't know how you're going to be received if you really show yourself. So for me, and I don't do it like everybody else necessarily, you should have some distance, but I've gone up there with no distance whatsoever from the pain I'm dealing with that I'm trying to to make into funny. I mean, the the title of my last CD was This Has to Be Funny, and that was actually a punchline to something that was fairly you know dark. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the one thing that I resonated with in looking at this diagram was that the risk is in stand-up, you know, can come down to the personality itself. So, no, I, I, I think that, you know, what you risk is by taking the brunt, you, you know, is that, you know, you're going you're gonna to martyr yourself for this joke. Right. So on an individual level, I think it's very high risk. You know, anyone can say something shocking. And the only risk there is that it doesn't get a laugh. But if, if somebody doesn't, you know, uh, you, you know, when I open myself up, if they don't want in, right. then the risk is, you know, being shut out and being isolated. Yes, right. And that, and that was one of the things that kept coming up over and over again on our travels is 
the two ways that a humor attempt can fail. So you can have not enough of a violation and you bore people like I did at the Squire. Mm -hmm. Or you create a situation that's not benign at all. It's just a violation, and right. then you upset people. I've done both those things. Yeah, and I every uh, day. Yeah, <laughs> since we started this podcast. Sure. Well, I mean, it's pretty subjective. Uh, you know, it, that, I mean, that's the other thing you're up against. I mean, you're yeah. trying to find some ob objective truth in, in in something that is you know incredibly subjective, both you know on an individual level and a cultural level. Yeah, which is why we went to Japan. And what happened there? So we decided to look at the question of. Why do you find humor so subjective? We decided to go to the place that we found the humor to be the most foreign from what we're used to. So we went to Japan. Not China? Did we, I think we talked about China. Well, the issue is, is that you don't have those cultural references. So if you ask the average American, what's, what's comedy like in China? Yeah. They'll say, I don't know. But if you folks ask, kept coming up to us you know, when they first heard about us going and doing the book. They said, yeah. can you please explain Japanese comedy to us? And and those are people that had seen Japanese comedy, or they it seemed like the YouTube, you? like the YouTube uh, kind of Japanese game shows and right, whatnot. Right, and they right. said, "Can you can you guys explain this?" We it's said, all very Fine. excited, right? It is, yeah, yeah. Yes. So we so we went to Japan, uh -huh. and we met uh, with representatives of Yoshimoto, uh -huh. which is the giant Japanese comedy company that runs all of Japanese comedy. It's like comedy, uh, all of Japanese comedy. Yeah, but it's so not a, literally, it's not a state office. Is it's it? uh, no, it's this giant corporation. Basically, I think like eighty percent of Japanese comedians are managed by Yoshimoto. Huh. Almost all the the comedy theaters are run by Yoshimoto. Huh. Most of the game shows where all the contestants actually are these comedians because the producers think that the average Japanese person doesn't show enough turmoil on their face and their gestures for these shows. All most of these shows are produced by Yoshimoto. Sounds like professional wrestling. Yes, it's like the and, studio system. Yeah, no, and, and, and similarly to wrestling, if you want to be a comedian in Japan, you have to go to one of uh, Yoshimoto's training schools, right? Where you we have to go through and learn these very specific gestures, these very specific joke structures. Uh huh. And it, now, what what was your experience with that? I mean, did you find that to be sort of a a monopoly, almost on the level of uh, comedic totalitarianism. Was 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 there Japanese comedy existing outside of this system? We we met a few folks who were outside of it, and they definitely described it like this kind of totalitarian system, where like they were fighting to create more variety. Uh, there are very few women, as you can imagine, in this system, um, and so and this system has been around since the 1920s, and it's based off vaudeville. Uh huh. Basically, American vaudeville. Yeah, he looked at American vaudeville, looked at the the two man comedy structure, the mm -hmm. straight man and then the bumbling sidekick, and they borrowed that, and they've stuck with that ever since then. Wow. So th there's not a real alt comedy scene in Japan. No, that's what I'm gathering. Yes, and and so one of the things that's really striking about Japan for us, I thought, was they have this. They, it's a very popular comedy scene. People, it's a big part of their entertainment, uh -huh. television, theater, uh -huh. and so on. Uh -huh. But the average Japanese person doesn't appear very funny. Right. That is that there's you don't find people laughing on the subway. There's very little humor within the classroom or in businesses. And so you get this perspective at first when you land in in Tokyo or Osaka that the Japanese aren't funny at all. But it's just that there are these there's a layer of cultural rules that we don't have to abide by as Americans, which is you're supposed to hide your emotions even positive emotions. That's a cultural thing. That's a cultural thing. But if you go out to a karaoke bar with a group of Japanese folks and you have a few sake bombs... It's okay. You have you can have a great time and they're really funny people and well, they really value this. Well, I would think that, you know, having that type of cultural expectation would... would the, the relief would have to be pretty 
large. They go out big. Yeah. Yeah, really big. But yeah. at the same time, I mean, we have our own limitations around comedy here. Sure. You know, there are certain kind of topics that we just don't joke about. Most people don't joke about. Like, say, like like the bestiality stuff. It's just, you know, it's not, it's not that common. While in Japan, the limitations are geographical. You know, you don't joke at school. You, you don't joke in the office. But in the places that you do joke, like at these comedy theaters, basically anything goes. Right, but anything in, 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 in what way? I would imagine that it, there, it, there has to be a context. I mean, what you're describing to me is, is that this is a, a, a sort of vaudevillian slapstick system that is designed to relieve uh, you know, intentional cultural limitations uh, that are, are based on, on etiquette, politeness, and, and the need to, uh, to, to, to behave a certain way culturally. But I mean, you know, they're not, are they doing, you know, rape jokes? And are, are they doing, you know, I, I mean, are they pushing any buttons other than, look, we're dead, like, blow some steam off? From from what we saw, I mean, some some of their jokes can get really topical. I mean, they they also have routines, and they you know they kind of make fun of kind of cultural taboos and stuff. The one thing that we're told that you don't see much of in Japanese comedy is political jokes, is political humor. And one, it's because the emperor is still considered very sacred, and also there's just not much diversity in Japanese politics to really kind of create the friction that we see in terms of humor here. So what did you, uh, what did you come away with uh, from Japan? Well, this idea, I think that although comedy is really different, so it still feels kind of foreign to us to watch these shows and so on, even though we understand that they're comedians and, and they have this sort of um, place in society as an mm-hmm. enter- entertainment form, is that the stuff that people joke about behind the scenes, we actually have a lot more in common than we we had thought. We actually spent some time in a green room with all these comedians. We're right after watching like one of these Japanese game shows taped for about three or four hours. We had no idea what was going on. They were dipping their faces in this hot boiling soup. Yeah, and we didn't get it. And then we went backstage, hang, hung out in the green room. Our translator like wandered off. Right. So we couldn't speak the same language. And what was in like two or three minutes, we were making penis jokes with each other. Right. So. So, so that's a universal language. At least among men. The dick joke. Yes. Yeah. Of course. So, but, but that seems primitive. I mean, how far back did you go? Did you visit primitive cultures? Oh, well, so the, so the research on, on, uh, on this actually, you, can go, you should go even farther back in the sense that if you want to tr- try to understand humor, you have to look for it in other mammals. So in non-human primates and chimps, monkeys, bonobos, etc., so the farthest back we went, in a sense, at least from an evolutionary standpoint, is we looked at rat laughter. Can rats laugh, and under what conditions do so they laugh? That's non-primate, so that's going to be very that's simple. Mammal, right. yeah, that's right. But but if you can find, I mean, this is a critical element. If you can find the same conditions that makes a rat feel positive emotion and quote unquote laugh, as the same set of conditions that exist in an ape and exist in humans, now you've taken a big step to cracking the humor code. Okay, so what did you find out with the rats? So we went to this, uh, this lab at Northwestern University uh, who um, they've been looking at this, this issue for a long time because they're trying to identify uh, positive emotion in rats because they want to actually uh, use these rats to create basically happiness pills. Uh-huh. So, um, so it's like the first step in a, a long Yeah, it sounds search. tricky. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay, but, they, they're going to crack the Soma code. We're, we're heading for Huxley. Exactly. Yeah. And so the idea is that they, they tickle these rats. Mm-hmm. So they sort of roughhouse with these, with these rats and, and 
although you can't hear it with your ears, you can pick up, uh, pick it up with this equipment, these ultrasonic chirps that when you're sort of roughhousing and tickling these rats, they, they make this chirping sound. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and as we like to say is these are situations that are wrong yet. Okay. These are benign violations to rats uh-huh. and it's physical and the most primitive form of comedy is physical. If uh-huh. you think about slapstick, it's not unlike that, right? Sure. right? So you're threatening someone, you're hurting someone, but you're not really hurting someone right. in the right. same way that tickling a rat. It's like is... playing with a puppy. Exactly. Right. So what do, what do you learn there? That the, that rats do laugh? The, well, so so they're reluctant to call it laughter, but it's it's a it's a signal. Right? Laughter is a signal. If you think about it, um, it it tells what I believe is it tells you. If I'm laughing, it tells you that what seems to be wrong is okay. But you're saying that all humor is a violation. That is okay. That's benign. A benign violation. That, all humor. I do believe that. All right. So where else did you go? So to look at this concept of laughter, because we because we recognize that you know it wasn't the same thing as, as right. humor. We went to Tanzania because we had read accounts of this 1962 laughter epidemic, uh-huh. where more than a thousand folks started laughing uncontrollably, right? And it spread from person to person and village to village, and it lasted for months. And we, you know, that to us seemed just a just a good context to then look at what is laughter. Okay, what'd you find out? We found out, as most people might expect, I mean, it wasn't like there was some really funny joke going on in Tanzania in 1962. Yeah. Now, this really did happen. They, they actually have accounts. We actually met with some of the people who the were laughers. part of this. Yeah, the- yeah. And what most people believe happened was it was an episode of mass motor hysteria. Things were happening at the time. These people reacted. It was mostly young schoolgirls, uh-huh. which, which is actually where we see most of this mass hysteria. Uh, a lot of these girls had left their villages and were in these strict uh, Catholic boarding schools. And all of a sudden, they kind of felt a need to release this stuff, to, mm-hmm. kind, of, to kind of express themselves. And laughter was one of the, uh, the effects mm-hmm. that, that they saw. And some people said, well, then, you know, why is this part of the humor code? Because it wasn't about humor. But then, it, but then if you think about what, what laughter just is its most basic concept, it's this, it's this uh, social signal, right? It's this really basic release. way. Yeah. It's, well, it's a basic way that, that, we can, that we can kind of signal something is okay. Right. Or, 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 or something is at least uh, a shared experience. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems with laughter is you have some control over it. So I could be polite and laugh at your jokes, even though I'm not amused by them. Yeah. Um, I might laugh at your joke uh, from a contagion standpoint because Joel's laughing at right. it. And then some of it is that because laughter helps smooth social interactions, it's been co-opted by language more generally. Sure. Where people will punctuate a sentence with a laugh. Right. Outside of their awareness and, and seemingly in a way that's not expressing true amusement nervous laughter or and or just it could be that or it could just be that, that or morning radio laughter it's just a <laughs> it's just a uh it's just a way to kind of help smooth this help you accept what sure, i just yeah, i'll said. give you an example of morning radio laughter you just told me that <laughs> yeah exactly that's right yeah mm-hmm. so that's a so and and of course people in morning radio Oh, Use watch that. it now. Watch it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or can laughter or having a studio audience. I mean, what one of the things that we wanted to do with this this book was to to basically 
use these places as a way to make the science go down a little easier, right? So to explore these sort of perplexing uh, phenomenon and to, to pick provocative things. And also, who doesn't want to go to Tanzania um, and just to uh, see it? To, to see this part of the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, in, in many ways, that's a part of the world where, where humanity originated, where you could, you could argue that our uh, ancestors uh, created comedy. Sure. Now, what about the idea that, that, that laughter is healthy? Yeah. So, so that was one of our big questions was, you know, is laughter really the best medicine? Mm-hmm. So for that, we decided to go to the Amazon with Patch Adams and 100 Hospital Clowns. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, once again, it seemed, it seemed like a fantastic scene. So we yeah. actually flew in a... This is a, the Amazon is where uh, a lot of interesting uh, chemical things come from, too, as well. I mean, like, you know, plant... Uh, oh, that's interesting. Uh, drugs and so drugs. on. Yeah, we actually flew to the city called Iquitos, mm-hmm. which is actually was part of, like, the rubber boom. Mm-hmm. So it's actually this... It's this, it's this massive city, and there are no roads to it, because it's, it's literally in the middle of the jungle. We actually flew in a Peruvian... Air Force cargo plane, like like strapped into the cargo plane, surrounded by 100 clowns, mm-hmm. and it was a trip. Actually, I think both of us were actually dreading. It was one of our last trips, and we just Sounds couldn't like imagine a, a big ordeal. Yeah, it's, I mean, like literally, we we're going to be in the jungle with clowns for two weeks. Yeah, um, it's hard to be anywhere with a clown. Yes, for, for a half hour. Even. But, well, that that's actually not true. <laughs> I, I mean, I so I I had that. I was like, oh my god, this is going to be terrible. Yeah, but it was. It ends up being one of our our most enjoyable trips because these are not the stereotypical clowns that people are scared of and uh-huh. find uh-huh. Uh, find horrifying but these these are young energetic people a lot of them work in hospitals and they were just fun and funny and generous in ways uh, that most people are not and even though we were in this hot sweaty place and we were being fa- we were faced with extreme poverty the, like the saddest of situations in the slum that we were working in we found ourselves having a really good time and in many ways supporting the idea that not laughter is the best medicine, but laughter is medicine. The science behind laughter is a good medicine just isn't there yet. I mean, the folks who've done the studies that said, you know, can, can laughter and humor do all these things that Norman Cousins promised and whatnot, the science just hasn't really backed that up yet. The There's one, good reason to believe it. It's just it hasn't been studied deeply yeah. enough. Yeah. So, well, the well, one, yeah, you'd have to go one step further with the rats, I guess. Yeah. But the one, but the one place that the research does seem to back this up is as humorous coping, as we've talked about. Right. Humor really does seem to have both physical and psychological coping mechanisms, and so it fit really well with with us being in this horrible place and having to quote unquote cope with it. But the fact that we're surrounded by clowns all the time, these really positive, kind of encouraging clowns, we actually had to clown ourselves. That's what they said. You guys, you could, you guys can come with Patch Adams, but you, but you have to clown yourselves. And I think that really helped us. Yeah. So if you think about it from a theoretical <laughs> standpoint, you get these benefits. So one is um, humor is this positive emotional experience, and there's a good deal of evidence that positive emotions help buffer us from stresses and strains in life. Another thing is that if you have a good sense of humor, it helps rally support. So when you're in times of trouble, people won't abandon you if you're funny in right. the sense that they they want to be around you. Right. You're not a bum, you're not a downer. You're not bumming them out all right. the time. And then the last one, which I think is the the most important one, and I think it's related to what you were saying earlier, is that the act of creating comedy from pain can fundamentally change the way you think about your pain. Right. And so it can rob stress uh, of its teeth. 
So it, it, it not only changes you emotionally, but it changes you cognitively. And so satire can do that. It can make an oppressor seem less scary and it can make your problem seem more trivial right. if done well, done successfully. It can also reveal certain truths just by, by it almost subtracting the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like the the idea of like, you know, I guess satire would be the the example of that, that the whole movement of modern satire was to to sort of um, suss out hypocrisy mm-hmm. and, and reveal, you know, what's at the, the core of it. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at, you know, Lenny Bruce or George Carlin and even even Bob Dylan in some ways that to sort of humanize the entire, you know, uh, undertaking of maintaining power, uh, you know, sort of take some teeth away in that way. I guess, uh, like, I, I'm sort of hung up on the idea that all comedy is a... Uh, oh, I know you. I, I want you to be. <laughs> all humor is a benign violation. Yes. I mean, I understand that because that can be uh, physical boundaries, emotional boundaries... Uh, linguistic, uh, linguistic violations. Right, exactly. nationalized boundaries, government boundaries. That's like right. that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of... Um, That's why comedy's everywhere. Because right, there's things that are wrong with everything that we do because we're human. Right, but I mean, but it's like when you say that it's a it's a violation, you have to be violating something, and that can be as simple as 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 finding a a door in mm-hmm. that you know that you either you're going to kick the door down or you're going to unlock something. Uh, but you know, I don't know why it all has to be a, a a violation. So, so my best argument for this is that if you if you treat this as a psychological experience akin to other provocative emotional ones, things like embarrassment, anger, regret, pride, and so on. Each one of those you can boil down to a small set of conditions. And they and they all fit within an evolutionary framework and they all fit within a psychological but the, framework. But the interesting thing is, is that humor can appropriate all of those things you just said. Yes, that's right. And I think that's, that's okay. Because um, what I'm just looking for are this small set of conditions. And I don't, in many ways, I, I am intentionally provocative when I say this. Um, can a benign violation account, um, and, and Joel will quickly agree with this, can it explain 100% of instances of, of amusement? No, um, but it, it'll do better than the next best theory. Yeah. And it'll create new um, predictions that other theories can't. So we talked about this idea of tragedy, that some jokes are too soon. But for instance, a benign violation account can can explain when a joke's too soon and when it's not. It can explain this sort of sweet spot in comedy between being boring and being offensive. And it can also explain why jokes are sort of too late. Because with the passage of time, those violations just become not threatening at all. Yeah, old reference. Exactly. And so in that way, um, it's the best of what we got. So now, now that you've written this book and now that you've done all this research, I mean, what was your, what was your ultimate I- agenda as a scientist? Uh, well, so a big part of this is just to make this part of the, the, the public discourse. Mm-hmm. So humor is such an important part of our lives. In academia, it's sort of been pushed aside. It's sort of the redheaded stepchild. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had people describe to me that my research program is a career killer because I'm, I'm sort of studying something that's, that is sort of seen as trivial within the science community at times. So for me, I, what I want to do is do very good science, but then also, you know, like working with Joel helped get this message out in ways that, uh, that ends up, you can have these kinds of 
conversations that we're having today. Well, what is your back? What what exactly is your background as a scientist? I'm a I'm a research psychologist. Oh, okay. So I'm an experimentalist, basically. Okay. I, I do research on emotion and decision making. What are, What are your hopes for this idea? The next step is to go back to the laboratory and see not only can we take this idea, can, how far can we take it? So the next big thing is going to be, can you use a benign violation account? Can you use science to make people funnier? Right. That's where that's where we're headed. In the same way that the positive psychology folks are trying to understand curiosity or gratitude. And then once you have those insights, can you prescribe those to make people's life better? Did you try? We're not there yet. Oh, I tried to be funnier in the book. Yes. Yeah. So I yeah, got up. So at the end of the book, so the first chapter of the book, you know, describing his his attempt at the Squire Lounge and embalming as the first time in stand up. Yeah. The last chapter is his second time doing stand up, which was at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. And that's when I saw you. So when you saw us, I think we were kind of collecting notes, trying to see what it was like. Right. As you know, it's quite the scene. And then when we went back a year later after we did all, all the travel, uh-huh. he, he tried again. And how'd that go? It went better than the Squire, which Why? isn't saying much. Was it applied science or was it just that you, know, you, you learn more about stand-up? Yeah, it's a little bit of art and a little bit of science. So, so what, part of it was just that we had all these great stories to mine, yeah. right? So one of the best ways to... Um, to be a good comedian is to to have a perspective that the audience doesn't have, to talk about things that the audience uh, will find new, novel, and so on. So we had lots of, you know, yeah. calamities along the way that you could talk about. And some of it is I just had understood, we understood a lot more about what goes into being funny on a stage with a microphone. Where'd you learn that? Hanging out with guys like you, right? <laughs> yeah. Hanging out in the green room in the back of comedy clubs, um, you know, spending time with comedians. What was the difference between, uh, like, what did you went to New York? Went to New York. We looked at the actually the New Yorker cartoon, the New Yorker's cartoons yeah. there. Yeah, hung out with Bob Mankoff. Well, Joel was in heaven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, I mean, this was the New Yorker, which for me as a writer is like the Valhalla. Yeah. Right. So I walked in there really, really, really nervous. Yeah, and what going were, in there. What were you getting, What were you trying to find out there? Bob's a, actually a student of of humor he actually started a phd and he's published papers and so on and so he really challenged us on these different ideas and he pointed out rightfully that the funniest cartoons don't make it into the new yorker that he's often looking for the aha kind of cartoon and so for instance the a benign violation approach doesn't do a good job with aha it does a much better job with haha and so the idea i think is that the insight that we gain pleasure from insights, uh-huh. uh, this sort of moment of inspiration of putting two things together that we didn't expect. And uh, that may accompany a laugh. That may be part of comedy, but it doesn't need to be. Uh-huh. So solving a puzzle can give you that moment of insight and the pleasure associated with solving that that puzzle. And in some ways, what you find is this this difference that New, good New Yorker cartoons have both, but most New Yorker cartoons is more interested in that pleasant insight uh-huh. where someone learns something or recognizes something that that the cartoonist brought them to in a way that was sort of mildly surprising. I don't. Yeah, but but don't, why can't like it seems that that the idea of violation here would encompass surprising it, yeah no of course so many many things that are benign that even, violations are surprising but, but even solving a puzzle you you violated the puzzle 
Yeah, but it's not really threat. You're not in a threatening situation. Oh, in so that, it has to in be threatening. Kind of, there's some something amiss or something threatening. Like if you solve the puzzle, you would blow up. <laughs> well, if the, if like for instance, the the solution to the puzzle, something taboo, perhaps right. that you could create. Right, you could create some laughter. We talked with Louis C.K. in Denver. Uh huh. He, he wasn't super fond of the benign violation theory. Yeah. And I, are you I think that was in are part. Are you surprised to hear that? Yeah, but I, I just because I, I think that the word violation is a problem. Yeah, so I mean, we're very careful to define. What did he it. say? So basically, this was at the Paramount Theater in Denver. I assume Louis had been on the road at this point for three weeks. It was like a Sunday night. He's eating a ham sandwich by himself. Yeah, getting ready for the show, and in walks this guy, Pete. He's wearing the same sweater vest he's wearing now. Yeah, and he starts going into his theory. He starts going yeah. on, and maybe like a minute in, Louis says, "Well, I just don't think it's that simple." Yeah, and as soon as you say something like that, I mean, it kind of cuts off the conversation. So then, then I'll let. So you Pete... didn't have time to explain yourself, and you violated Louis' space. Yeah, well, actually, Pete continued to violate yeah. Louis' space because. Actually, this was the point when I realized I could probably write a book about this guy because what he did next showed that, you know, it wasn't just him and kind of spouting about science. Before we met backstage with Louis, we've been hanging out in the lobby of the Paramount and Pete uh, started started telling people, like, look, I, look we're going to go backstage to meet Louis C.K. Right. Like, what should we ask him? And this one drunk woman says, well, you should ask him his penis size. Yeah. So fast forward, we're backstage... Pete's, Pete's theory has been shot down. All of a sudden, Pete goes, so before this, I was talking to people about what I should ask you. And I'm thinking in my head, he's not going to say yeah. what he's going to say. And then he says, one woman wants to know your penis size. Yeah. And Louis kind of smiles, not really. Yeah. And he says, well, I'm not going to answer that. And then I said, well, I wouldn't answer it either. But if you won't, it means it's small. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that, that didn't get a positive response. He's a tough audience. Yeah, and I think, you know, what I realized, once we went to L.A., I realized um, what bad taste that kind of behavior <laughs> is with regard to comics. Because as a comedian, I think people are always trying to prove themselves as funny around you. And that sort of fits that stereotype. It's tough to violate a comedian. Yeah. Well, I mean, it should, be, it, should be hard to, it should be hard to offend comedians. Yeah. Um, but but you often like try to converse with comedians like using using jokes. One of the things that was really fascinating about studying this topic and especially hanging out with comedians here in LA is we sort of we started to be transformed in a sense. So we were we would sit in the back of the club with these comedians and someone would be up on stage killing and the audience would be roaring with laughter and we had this sort of detached perspective where we were like, "Oh, that's very funny." And that's, I think it's a little bit of a curse of, of this profession is that, that you can recognize that that is humorous. So cognitively, you know, it's the case, but because you're not caught up in the moment, you don't end up having that kind of emotional reaction. Well, I think all of us have different tastes. I think that the, the weird thing about standup is that, you know, using the, the benign violation is that. You know, that, that is essentially, you know, whether or not the, the theory holds up, you know, in the minutia of, of how humor works, but a benign violation that, that is extended over the course of, of an hour is really, you know, the relationship you have with an audience mm. in, in a way. 
that you, you know you, you have to warm them up you have to sort of lube them up somehow you have to gain trust mm-hmm. and they know that they're going to be shocked they know that they're going to be surprised they know they they have to uh, to sort of let you in yeah so i think that dynamic of being let in by an audience knowing that you know there's a safety to it because of the context but you, you know you're kind of a crazy guy or a dirty guy or whatever the hell your guy is i do think that the benign violation is is sort of an apt metaphor for a relationship with an audience. Uh, but, you know, that I've seen that violation get pretty gnarly. I mean, the weird thing is, is that, you know, just as a metaphor, you know, functioning for a stand-up's relationship with an audience, I mean, I've seen that go horribly wrong, where, where you, you know, benign violation, the problem with using the word violation is that it does not necessarily connote pleasure. That, that you know, the idea that you're going to volunteer for a benign violation it's just a, it's it's a tricky word. I understand, but I, I don't have a better word at this point for it. We we kicked around benign threats. We kicked around a lot of different ideas here, but it's actually not as uh, it's actually not as um, much of a problem as you think. Because if you start to look at human behavior more generally, you can start to find a whole class of behaviors in which people pursue unpleasantness. Um, so if you think about like eating spicy foods, or if you think about things like. Uh, people who are into bondage I mean, these are extreme sports extreme sports right, but, 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 you they're, know, they're, they're putting themselves in unpleasant situations that that in some way they find a way to transform into a, a pleasurable and it may be it's it the be, challenge yes that's yeah right. initially and and you know in terms of sexuality i mean then you're yeah i mean you're, be, you're, you're being awfully general and you know and as a you know a research psychologist you know you'd have to go deeper to find the roots of that but yeah i yes. can see how you you court that no well i mean i think the idea of this is that that um people's comfort and pursuit of comedy and its risks start to make a lot more sense when you when you look at how they pursue pleasure in un um in negative situations they go and watch horror movies for instance well, there's something about they watch get, sad movies like getting out of your right? comfort zone or or, or or sort of you know putting yourself in a position where you will be challenged on some level uh to overcome yes uh you know i i think is is part of the human drive is that like you know i know that like just getting on stage is going to be risky mm-hmm. and that like you know i i don't always know what's going to happen but i i know that if i i get through it and something surprising happens and you know then i grew somehow right right yeah I mean, that's isn't that part of growth yeah that's part i mean certainly that's the and you see this within art i mean that's to me is the is the part of comedy that's more like the process of creating art so making a song creating a painting uh composing um you know classical music is is a, a process by by which you you entertain people but the person who's who's made this thing is transformed by it joel and i have been transformed by it yes yeah, it's funny i mean at the beginning of the book in some ways you know we we had to come up with some kind of conceit for me like you know what why am i going on this journey other than the fact that hey i got a book deal i can go travel around the world right and so the beginning of the conceit was oh you know I need to get from beyond my reporter's notebook, which is in some ways kind of a bland conceit. But the nice thing was, literally, we did kind of find that. As Pete said, one of our last trips into the Amazon, for me especially, that was a really just powerful experience. I mean, in some ways, you know, I had to strap on a clown nose and kind of put down the notebook, kind of get out there, you know, in many ways more than I had the rest of these trips. You know, and, you know, I'm a dad, so I use my little, my, my dad training out there. And then in the final chapter, right after, kind of just for laughs, a friend of mine said to me, you know, I think you've gotten funnier. 
And he really said it, and that really struck me because I, I really hadn't been thinking about, you know, my place in all of this. Mm-hmm. And as I say in the book, you know, m- maybe it's in part because of the benign violation theory. Maybe, maybe I've learned to look for these violations and make them benign. But at the same time, I think, you know, as Pete said, all of a sudden I have that much more comedy material. I mean, I travel, I think we traveled 91,000 miles around the world to all these round trips back and forth. We've done all these things. And so all of a sudden I had all these new stories. Sure. And at the same time, one thing I was just thinking about, for the longest time I refused to go on roller coasters. I think since I was like first grade, I had a bad experience on like Thunder Mountain. I refused to go on it. Yeah. Then a few weeks after we finished the book, I went to a amusement park with friends and I just jumped right on the roller coaster. And I think it's kind of, like you said, it kind of forces you out there. All of a sudden, you know, it forced me to put myself out there that I hadn't before. I mean, like right now I'm, I'm on your podcast. This is stuff that wouldn't have happened if I didn't go exploring these concepts. Sure. And like, Joel's actually has helped me, helped me with that with the book. Because the book's written from his perspective, so I'm I'm a character in the book, and uh, it took it took some uh, how do you say this? I I I've had to stop myself from censoring him from saying things about me that were bad, um, or even talking about some sad things. So my my mother dies while we're writing the book, mm-hmm. and. Um, and he wrote about that experience and how I dealt with it and what my sister and I did in terms of scattering her ashes. And, and you know, it's, this, these are things I'm not necessarily proud about, my childhood and so on. But that, that idea, uh, he, he made that happen because it, that wasn't – if I was writing the book alone, I might have decided to set that aside. That sounds like where we should have started. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I figured that would be the case. <laughs> That's why I'm ending on it. <laughs> it's good talking to you guys. Good luck with the book. Thank you. All right. Well, you know, do with that information what you, what you will. Check out the book. It's interesting. It seems it could be practical for people that may want to uh, regulate or develop the sense of humor that they may or may not have, or just uh, hear some interesting stories about the journeys around the world with the funny. <laughs> funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Listen, folks. There was I had a thought, and I'll just share this with you. The other, the other day I was on Southwest flight. And... Uh, They made an announcement that there would be no peanuts on the flight. I didn't even want peanuts. But this is, uh, you know, to, to out of respect for the health of people with peanut allergies, which can be pretty nasty, not something you want to deal with on a plane or anywhere for that matter. But when they said that, I, I, the part of my brain was like, are you fucking kidding me? No peanuts? That, we, that's the only thing we get on these flights. No peanuts. I don't like pretzels. What kind of bullshit? Pe- no peanuts. Is that a real person that complains like that? That's a deeper issue. That's why I didn't honor it. When it came up in my head, I just said, who's that guy? That guy is out of his fucking mind. I said that to the guy in my head. Okay. Rest in peace, Rich Sizer. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>